And I'm reminded of Sally Rooney's last book. Taylor Swift and Joe Alwyn broke up. Gender is almost a verb. Books can bring us together, and also planes can. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world, and we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, working on her night cheese. And I'm James Earl, constantly confusing the romance of comedy with the romance of romance. Oh, classic problem. <laughs> and live, live from, from Durham, Durham, North Carolina, Carolina we're, we're discussing, discussing romantic, romantic comedy, comedy by, by Curtis Sittenfeld. You, you might have been able to tell from that intro that this book was SNL inspired. Yeah. And uh, you might also be able to tell from that intro that we are in the same place for the first time in a year. Yes. It's very, very exciting. Books can bring us together and also planes can. Yeah. Yeah. Planes. <laughs> planes and plans. We meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to go into our discussion about this book. But as a warning that we always give, there are going to be lots of spoilers. It's a romantic comedy, so you probably can guess how it ends, but, you know, there's all the surprises along the way. And Melissa, I think it's your turn to do the summary, so I'll count you in. Okay, awesome. Three, two, one. Okay, so this entire book takes place from the first-person perspective of a woman named Sally, and she's a writer for TGS with Tracy Jordan. I mean, the Night Owls. <laughs> An SNL-like show where they write sketches for a late night audience um, that's live and then they always have a musical guest. And this week there's a musical guest slash host named Noah and he is a pop idol from the turn of the millennium who everyone thinks is really hot. And at the same time, the person that Sally is closest to on the show, a co-writer of hers, Pete Davidson or Danny Horst, has started dating a superstar, <laughs> Ariana Grande, whose name I don't remember so we're going to call her Ariana. And as a response to this, Sally creates a rule that she makes into a sketch called the Danny Horst rule, where only the schlubby male writers on the Night Owls ever get to date female superstars and superpowers, while none of the women get the chance to. And then this entire book finds out, is that true or is that false? Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's other pieces too that yeah. are important. Well, I think this is the first book that I've read that actually has the pandemic as a plot point in it. Yeah, that was going to be the only thing I would add to your summary is that there's they meet and then there's a pandemic and then they meet again towards the end of the pandemic and they become a, a cluster. What was it called here? Pod. A pod. They became a pod. It's been so long since the pandemic you can't remember pod. Yeah, but also we didn't have pods in Italy. Oh. This See? is not in the discourse. Oh. Okay, I think that we need to start off with, first of all, discussing the Danny Horst role in the real world. Yes. Uh, do you agree with the... Because th at some point, Noah calls her out and says that the Danny Horst rule uh, is just her philosophy of life and doesn't correspond with reality because yeah. he's like feels that he is the embodiment of the antithesis. Right, right, right. So I started creating a list. So here are all the situations that I see follow the Danny Horst rule. One, Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande. Obviously. Number two, obviously, Colin Jost, Scarlett Johansson. Number three, Emma Stone, and she's married to that white dude writer who bought her a pearl engagement ring who, yeah, like okay. that was an SL yeah. writer. Um, so they're still together, they're married, they have a kid. And there's two examples that I've had from talk shows where celebrities confessed later on to SNL stars that they were in love with them mm. um, after these guys were married. So one was Jennifer Lawrence, she tried to get with Seth Meyers. Mm -hmm. And then Nicole Kidman tried to get with Jimmy Fallon. That's some hot gossip. There's a lot of examples of it. And then I was like, well, are there any examples of like 
female stars on SNL who are dating like mega celebrities. Mm-hmm. I have zero. My zero. list is zero. And and feel free to <laughs> <laughs> come up with any. Yeah. I mean, this is an interesting thing because like, I think that Pete Davidson is of a pretty high erotic class. Yeah. And uh, I, Colin Jost is like, he's a good looking dude. He's maybe not as good looking as... As Scarlett Johansson, but like he's a good-looking dude. But what's interesting about it is part of it is about a writers versus actor stars. So like all the examples I gave you were people who are writers and yeah. they were stars. Oh, and then John Mulaney divorced his wife for Olivia Munn. Oh, yeah. There's really another example. Oh, you mean also mostly divorced her because of his drug addiction issues? But mm. you know, it all happened at the same time. So. All of these people, though, are, like, stars. The only person who's an actual just writer and not also, like, an actor is Emma Stone's husband. Hmm. So I don't know how much of it is, to your point, these people are stars in their own right. It's just that they're on television and not in, like, movies or in stadiums. Right. And they've made it as writers at a pretty high level. So they're interesting. But I I get the the hypothesis. It's, like, Mm -hmm. schleppy-looking guy, world-class beauty... Right. Like, why is Kristen Wiig not dating George Clooney? Right. And it, and it doesn't happen the other way around, where, yeah. like, yeah, some, like, very clever writer ends up marrying Brad Pitt, or the equivalent of a Brad Pitt. Yes, correct. Okay. Although, I think probably the difference is that female writers can tell. Like, I, I just always think about, um, what's his, Josh Joshua, who's the guy who thought that Natalie Portman was in love with him? Oh, Jonathan Safran Fowler. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe it's just that women don't shoot their shot, because I actually think that might be a thesis of this book, is yeah. the difference might just be that women don't shoot their shot for these dudes. Right, right. Versus, they, like, clearly Jonathan yeah. Safferfauer thought that he had a chance with Natalie Portman. Right. Is he an idiot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that he had the confidence that exactly. enough, enough men have the confidence to do to go for it, and not enough women have the confidence to go for it. Right. There is an element of the, the book where it's like, you need to get out of your own way in order to break these rules. Right. There's Keanu Reeves, who is in a very serious relationship with an artist of an appropriate yes. age. And I don't know who made the first move there, but that, that could be an antithesis to... Of course it's Keanu. It's only Keanu. Yeah, it's only Keanu. The thing that I found really interesting about the Danny Horst rule mm-hmm. is that, and this may not be something you're aware of because... I have to be aware of things in the manosphere because of my job teaching 14-year-old boys and their susceptibility to the manosphere. Tracks. But there is a term that is like really popular in the like Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson, oh, Fit dear. and Fresh podcast universe that is hypergamy. Have you ever heard this term? Hypergamy? Hypergamy. Uh, no. Okay. Tell me more. I mean, I don't want to hear more, but you'll no, have to tell me more yeah, to explain I, like, it. I apologize to anybody <laughs> who is blissfully ignorant of this concept and how it's used in the manosphere. But it's the idea that women are with... And you know how this the manosphere loves um, evolutionary biology, pop science stuff. That women are like programmed in some way to constantly be seeking higher status men. And so hypergamy is like looking for relationships that will improve one's status. And so it's used by, like, the incel community to just validate themselves as to why they're not getting any. And it's used to uh, validate movements like enforced monogamy that will, like, ensure that disenfranchised men are getting laid or whatever. So, yeah, there's this concept in Mm -hmm. the incel manosphere communities that is all women are constantly always trying to 
increase their status by going with high status man and high status man is defined as like you know in addition to things like jaw lines um more money better looking more successful whatever and this the danny horst hypothesis seems to be in direct opposition like philosophically from this Mm -hmm. and i think it's just like another example of how the manosphere Mm -hmm. looks for advice for how to or the the manosphere itself has this internal logic where it asks young boys to listen to andrew tate and Jordan Peterson about what will make them attractive rather than just like looking at media mm-hmm. produced by women and then looking at what actually women find attractive. Yeah. They like would prefer to take the advice of Andrew Tate than Curtis Sittenfeld or like any of the many women making books or producing movies. Because if you look at like what is attractive in those pieces of media, it's like not the giga chad that appears in the manosphere. Mm-hmm. I think that's super interesting. Because I, I think the book has this really interesting conversation and I think it tracks with where we are in like the feminist discourse right now. It's like, what is equality? What is the relationship ideal that we are like hoping for? Because there is the conversation that we have with the head writer of The Night Owls who is married to an Oscar winner. His name is Elliot. Mm-hmm. And he has a quote early in the book where he's like, well, isn't like the best thing that you can do is have a successful man married to an even more successful woman. Isn't that the, the best thing that we can do to like break the patriarchy or whatever and versus i think that by the end of the book where we're actually reading is like two people who are amazing in independent fields Mm -hmm. who help make you better in a field that you respect but aren't great at yet yeah like the tennis analogy comes up of playing with a better player Mm -hmm. in a game that you want to learn yeah and that really resonated with me yeah, I 100% agree. I have in my notes, Noah is really good at the performance of the body. He's got the flowy hair and the six-pack mm-hmm. abs, and he can perform at MSG in front of a lot of people where part of his like brand is his physicality. And so there's like this performance of the body. And I love at one point, he says to Sally, like, you know, my hair is kind of my thing. And she says, I thought you're a singer-songwriter. <laughs> like, your ability to play the guitar is your thing. And I thought that was so interesting because, like, in one way she's right but in another way she's wrong like part of his brand is mm-hmm. his body and so there's a performance of the body with him and then she is the exact opposite she is like purely the performance of the mind and so she even just refers to herself as this like troll in the shadows um, where she's unseen and the thing that, about her that is seen is only her ideas like her body doesn't get to be seen so he's really good at the performance of the body she's really good at the performance of the mind they're both equally good at the performance of emotion like her writing mm-hmm. is filled with this like rage and his um, music is filled with this like teenage angst and like lovesick whatever optimism their artistic performance is both oriented in the direction of emotion but one of them does it through the performance of the body and the other one does it through the performance of the mind and that's like really interesting I thought it was really interesting I thought it was really well done thematically mm-hmm yeah, I totally agree with that. I think one thing that has been interesting to me is the compare contrast you have for Sally's other relationships with Noah. And mm. the first, because she is a divorcee, she got married to her college sweetheart who worked on the Duke newspaper with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she pr- tries to pursue a relationship with Elliot, the head writer of The Night Owls. Um, so someone who is also in the same field as her. And then there is like this recurring joke that Danny Horst makes calling her a chuckle slut, which is girls who hook up with comedians. comedians. But she actually like doesn't really do that. She like kind of want to hook up with writers, but not comedians, um, which is why it's like funny. But I think what ends up happening is like Noah is a chuckle slut for her. (laughs) (laughs) 
because um, he wants to be funny and like she is able to help him make him funnier. I guess my question is like, do you have to be in different fields? Like, is it being in the same field too competitive? Like, is there a need actually for it to be with someone who's slightly different than you in order to not be jealous and for you both to be really professionally successful? Is that a way that you're able to break this like heteronormative power struggle? Cause you're in different fields. Mm. Like yeah. I'm Serena Williams, I'm the best tennis player in the world, right, right. and my husband, you know, he founded Reddit, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. it's that's cool for him, and he can yeah. feel accomplished because of that, and right. he doesn't have to feel threatened by me. Yeah. Well, I think there is a question here about like the value of women and whether or not it is their looks to a certain extent. Like when you're dating up, it was unclear for me in the Danny Horse role how much of it it's like you're dating a bombshell versus you're dating someone with an extraordinary with talent. talent. Exactly, yeah. Because like Elliot's like, oh, it was an Oscar winner. But then Danny and Ariana Grande, Ariana Grande, fake Ariana Grande, she's like really believes in astrology. And she's like, I don't know if we can get married because our signs don't match and like all of this other stuff. And they make her like really vapid. Yeah, she doesn't come off particularly good in this. So dating up for Danny is dating the hottest girl that he can find. Right. And it's not about he's fallen in love with her music or something like that. I mean, it does seem like he cares about her emotional health and that his love for her was beyond just that she's very pretty. However, it seems like the Danny Horst rules founded on this, like the foundational premise of it is that he wants her because everybody wants her because Mm -hmm. she's hot and not because she's particularly clever or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting way to think about the Danny Horst rule as well, is like, do I believe that Colin Jost and Pete Davidson are good-looking dudes in the Bahia Rada class because Scarlett Johansson and Ariana Grande gave them their attention, and so I'm like, therefore they must be, mm-hmm. I must be missing something, mm-hmm. and like, if I just saw them on the street, I'd be like, oh, like... <laughs> five like i don't know and like i just like that their attention actually made them more attractive right right, right versus just dudes from satin island yeah yeah <laughs> just two dudes <laughs> from satin island but yeah I, actually i think that's an interesting way of thinking about this simply because a lot of this book is about how the perception of the person the perception of the celebrity particularly mm-hmm impacts the way that we think that they're going to respond to us mm-hmm. and so like she doesn't think that Noah is going to like her simply because he's famous. Mm -hmm. And so, like, because a lot of people want him, you think that, well, then he must be out of my league and whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, like, there's this interesting intersection of the way that we attribute value to people based on how many people like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think there's another thing in there about, like, how do you you handle dating someone who's more successful than you? Mm -hmm. And how do men deal with it and how do women deal with it? Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting that Danny Hortz and Ariana Grande broke up because he makes a really bad joke about how like 10 years from now, we're getting a 10 year warranty for this appliance. Then we'll be divorced and dating robots by then in 10 years. <laughs> and, then, and then she gets mad at him more. <laughs> yeah, I was like, well then why are we even together? Like if you think you're gonna date a robot in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, um, dating Danny Horst does not make her funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so to say that more clearly, we perceive people differently based on how we perceive how they are perceived in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, like, because I think that 
Pete Davidson must be perceived as attractive because Ariana Grande gave him her attention. Therefore, I'm already, like, thinking that he must be more attractive. Like, I go Mm -hmm. in there with the assumption that he's attractive rather than the assumption that he's a dude from Staten Island. Yes, and I think also there's an element of, like, what assumptions do we make about the person who is dating, quote-unquote, down, and how is that different based on gender? So for men, we assume that if they're dating down, it has to do with them really liking like how attractive a woman is, but like that doesn't have anything to do with like her personality or anything like that. Like they're really just looking for looks, age, childbearing hips Mm -hmm. versus if a woman is dating down, it's really about looking at someone as like a whole person and they're able to like take that beat and value them as a whole person. And so a lot of what Sally is doing to Noah is assuming that he's shallow, that he's hypersexual, that he only dates models and that's the thing that like breaks them up initially is that she, he, she makes a really bad joke about him just like dating 22 year old models and he's like i thought that i was showing you who i am and i thought i was seeing who you are and clearly we're having different conversations mm-hmm. yeah and i feel like that taps into uh what a lot of my notes have to do with on this book and that is the per- like the way that we perform identities mm-hmm. like there's a, a thought in like gender theory that judith butler is generally considered to be responsible for that is like that gender is almost a verb that it is just a repeated performance of something and that becomes your identity and so we all perform what it is to be male or female all the time but this is also true of a lot of other kinds of identities that like all identity is just like repeated performance of a bunch of different symbols Mm -hmm. and tropes and like you apply these things to yourself and i feel like that is really at work throughout this book like there are lots of times when sally says that she's like not sure whether or not her writer self is her or her Mm -hmm. like in real life self is her i think one of the coolest examples of this is noah's for breakout hit his song about having sex in july making love in july james making (laughs) love um making love in july and that he was (laughs) he was 17 19 You only make love when you're 19, sorry. Um, And that he has that song, but he's a virgin when he writes that song and starts performing that song, but then that leads to him becoming a mega celebrity and actually, like, having sex in July, making love in July. Yes. So this, like, idea that you, like, first perform the thing and then you can become the thing. Mm -hmm. And that she is constantly, like, writing and, like, performing a self Mm -hmm. and slowly becoming that self. And I feel like at the beginning of the novel, when she is performing the person that writes things for a, a medical company or whatever whatever lie she tells um, the people she's dating, when she's performing that, when she's like pretending to be this copywriter for um, something that's almost intentionally boring, she is boring. And then once she's like allowed to perform in these emails during the pandemic, mm-hmm. this like funnier, more confident self, all of a sudden she like becomes mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And I think that also plays well with she talks in the beginning of the book when she and Noah start getting like getting along that like her dream is to, like write a rom com but like a, like a progressive rom com, and he's like, well, for someone who's not much of a romantic, like I don't like what is your thesis or what are you doing? And she's like, I don't write from a point of clarity, I write from confusion, mm-hmm. and the entire book is her writing her way, especially with the epistolary nature of the book, like writing herself into a point of clarity that actually ends in her not writing a rom com. Yeah. Instead, she's writing like a like a feminist girl-girl buddy movie um, at the end, which I think is like a really interesting way that she wrote herself to a different kind of clarity. Yeah, so this idea of like a vague, like you have this confusion that are all the different parts of yourself that are constantly in motion and interacting with, them, with each other. And part of that is also like how you're externally perceived. 
and that all these things come together to build the self. And so there's like a lot of really good lines um, that directly deal with this. One of them that I have in my notes is, even I wasn't sure if my in-person self, a mild-mannered woman of average intelligence and attractiveness, or my scripts, willfully raging sketches about sexism and bodily functions, reflected my real self, or if I had a real self, or if anybody did. Mm-hmm. And so this is like a constant process of becoming, um, and that it, like you can change your script if you write from confusion. Like if you deal with your identity as a, like recognize that it is a place of confusion and then operate within that to make conscious decisions. And I think also like an interesting part of that is the the role that the body plays in it and the way that she perceives her own body and the way that she perceives his body and his, you know, that he may or may not be wearing a wig and that he has like celebrity body. Uh, and so we project assumptions onto that um, like I really like the moment in the book when he says, when you call me out for being a celebrity, you're not actually calling me out on something I'm trying to hide. Like, this is not something I can divorce from myself. Like, mm-hmm. this is part of his performance of self is that he is constantly being talked about and people are constantly talking about his body and the state of his hair and so on. And that's like, he doesn't have a choice in that, but that is part of his identity. I mean, that's apropos, especially given that there's a character that's an optometrist in the book. Right, and Viv even says... Our eyes are really important, and I think that's part of the narrative cohesion of this entire book, is that they, she makes very clever decisions like that, like to put that optometrist in there who allows for that line about how our eyes and the way that we see the world is really important, because the way that we see the world is really important, and it's part of people's identities about the, the way that they live in their bodies and the assumptions that we make about those bodies becoming something that people need to respond to. Like one of the decisions you need to make in identity construction is how you're going to respond to the way that your body is perceived in the world. And like having an optometrist dating an actress so that it allows for that role. Like it's about the importance of the way that we see, but also the way that we code the things that we see, like the perceptions that we have of what we see, which is like really similar to Othello, which is what I'm writing about right now. Tell me more. (laughs) I'm writing a lot about Othello for my other projects. And do you want to tell us more? Do you want to like okay, do a for little? For the YouTube channel, Shakespeare yeah. Play by Play, and like the Moore's body, like Othello's body, comes with a bunch of assumptions about it, um, particularly on the Elizabethan stage. And so, like, if you see a character dressed in black and blacked up as Othello would have been on an early modern stage, there are built-in, already present assumptions that this is the character of sin because mm-hmm. that's the way that a devil would have been portrayed on the medieval stage for a morality play. And so this idea that like this body can exist on the stage, it already has these assumptions about it baked in. So when it appears, that character needs to address those things. Like Othello doesn't have a choice about whether or not he addresses those concerns about his body or not. And so his first speeches have a bunch of biblical references so that people know that he's Christian. They've got a lot of really mm. uh, interesting turns of phrases so that they know he's educated and like references to mythology and so like, And so he's trying to combat the assumptions that one would have about his body in every decision that he's making publicly. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Noah is kind of the same. Like she thinks that he's shallow. She mm-hmm. like she is his body comes with a bunch of assumptions that he is consciously needing to make decisions about within his own performance of self. Right. And the, the entire book is then, as you noted earlier, like unpacking that, like he shaves his head at the end and he's just like, you know, clearly I've been wearing a toupee, like it's all been a secret, but like, yeah. 
like I'm ready to like own parts of my body that are real. And the same thing when she talks early about her career at the Night Owls, where she was given the advice to like act like like to act like a man, write like a man. She yes. was writing to impress men and male comics and her crush on Elliot. And then once she got like pushed aside, she's like, "What the fuck am I doing?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then she really like, leans into like, "What does it mean to like own her own body and to own a woman's body and a woman's voice?" Right. Right. She was like assuming a white male gaze, mm-hmm. and then when she stops doing that, she's able to perform her brain better like mm-hmm. since hers is constantly the performance of the, the mind um, she's able to do that more authentically once she's able to assume herself as the audience in her own mind mm-hmm. yeah that's really interesting I do have this one interesting have you read it any other Curtis Sinfeld I have not I know generally some other things in her corpus like the Rodham book mm-hmm. and that there was the Pride and Prejudice retelling but mm-hmm. I don't um, I don't I have heard any so there is this interesting thing. So she wrote Rodham, which was a Hillary Rodham Clinton um, reimagining of what if they she didn't marry Bill, and it ends with if she didn't marry Bill, we'd have our first woman president. <laughs> Yay! She also wrote a book um, that was about basically Laura Bush. She also wrote Eligible, which is a retelling of Brian Prejudice, and then Prep, which being about a prep school. And so a lot of her books are about a relationship to power, and specifically also women's relationship to men. And what has been really interesting, and I've only read Prep Eligible, and I haven't read Rodham, but I know a lot of people who've read Rodham. Um, There is this element in her later books with Rodham getting the first female president if you don't marry your terrible husband, and Eligible, which is a more feminist retelling of Pride and Prejudice. It feels like an ideal white feminist worldview of like all of her books to a certain extent even though there was a lot of realistic dialogue in it they feel like white female fantasy novels (laughs) it actually felt a little bit like i just saw the barbie movie if anyone (laughs) wants to see it i would recommend it um and there's something about it that is like sweepingly heteronormative in a beautiful way Mm. where it's like men are like this women are like this and then if we just solve this one problem where we can treat each other like equals or we can honor women's accomplishments without thinking about their looks, then society is better and we've all found true love. Yeah. And you think that this book fits into that white feminist utopia or I think it's it trying does. to subvert it? I think and it does. I think it does kind of subvert it. Like mm. the the fact that Sally is a performance of a mind and Noah mm. is performance of the body. Like I think that the traditional way of thinking about that would be the opposite that the women have the elegant bodies mm-hmm. and that men are the ones who are doctors and oh sorry this is like a moment of like with when mcdreamy came yeah. out all women wanted was the fantasy of i'm a total mess and you're really handsome and i'll take care of me that became a trope for a while in the yeah. narrative like this to me feels like where we are right now is like we are looking for equals but at the same time like a male who can be an emotionally intelligent caretaker Mm -hmm. who can also have emotional labor he's also pays for everything too like they're like noah is an idealized love interest in like every way and same thing can be said with like how they recreate darcy in Mm -hmm. pride and prejudice Mm -hmm. the remake eligible like he's not only rich but he does emotional labor yeah (laughs) yeah I've had this criticism of a lot of books that we've done, and I didn't even think about it with this one, where the love interest is just perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just sort of teaching people how to be 
And so there's like a, a moral center that is unfailing in the way that he responds to things. And like, there's very few times where Noah responds to things and I'm like, ah, you could have done that yeah. better. Like most of the time he's spot on. Right. And then I'm like, wait, am I then being an asshole? If I love reading this and I'm like, yes, Noah, am I being an asshole if I'm like, Manic Pixie Dream Girls are pieces of right. crap that we need to like excommunicate from society. That's exactly my point with this. And I, that's actually a better phrase than I have in all the previous episodes when I brought up this criticism <laughs> of these things is that this is exactly a Manic Pixie Like Noah exists almost for the moral development of Sally. Mm-hmm. And that's like what his role is, is to like say, hey man, I'm a celebrity. Like you're applying these things. I'm not trying to hide them. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That he's, yeah, he's there so that she can get better. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my question is, am I okay with this? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's the real question. Is that okay right now? I mean, I think we'll probably look back at it and be like, we shouldn't have been okay with it, mm-hmm. but it feels okay now. Like at least McDreamy was cheating on his wife. You know, there was a flaw there. <laughs> yeah. Like what's Noah's flaw is that he's bald. He did have an eating disorder or at least like a lot of body dysmorphia where he was doing very unhealthy things to his body. But that does nothing but make him more vulnerable and lovable. Mm-hmm. Like if and like it doesn't it doesn't code as a flaw. Like he's not making mm-hmm. mistakes that hurt other people. Mm-hmm. It's like he's working through something himself, but he's at this point in the novel he's worked through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm coming around now that we've discussed <laughs> just like for thirty seven <laughs> more seconds. That I would rather have this than I think that part of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is that she's like emotionally unstable to mm. a certain extent. And there are so many narratives where women are presented with these quote-unquote idealized men, but they're not ideal in any way. They're Edward Cullens who are stalking you while you sleep. Or we, I was just in a bookstore in Durham, North Carolina, where they were talking about It Ends With Us. And they're like, oh, Ryle was so dreamy. I just like really wish that he'd been able to work through his issues so they could have been together. I was really rooting for them. If you don't remember from our previous podcast, Ryle was an abusive piece of shit who knocked his wife around. <laughs> This is like a straight up failure of my profession. Like not <laughs> able to teach people how to read, how to read media effectively, right? Like that. That is just the wrong take. Right. But like this book, actually, it almost is. It's like a demonstration of like what a beautiful functional relationship could yeah. look like. And this was like the one quote where I was like, oh, "This is what like we should all aspire for." Um, which James, I feel like you and our producer have in this your relationship, yeah. which is. This is how grown-up conversations worked. Yes, I love this quote. I'm glad you're bringing it up. Not that your conversation wouldn't falter, but that you both made good faith attempts to rectify things if they had. Yes, I I really love that. And that is, I think, like what we're aiming for. I think I think this book says mm-hmm. this is what adult conversations are. This is hundred percent not what adult conversations yeah. are. <laughs> but we should aspire. Yes, but it's it's what we should aspire to as we grow up. We should get closer to that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really well put. And I also want to return to your point about how this is much better than the Manic Pixie Dream Girl because Noah and the other characters that uh, I believe fit this trope of the like perfect friend or perfect boyfriend that just exists as a an unqualified moral center in the book is that that doesn't happen with Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Like Manic Pixie Dream Girls are chaotic; they're mentally unstable, and they like help some boring guy embrace life. Um, they're never emotionally vulnerable. They like don't mm. have meaningful backstories. Where like Noah confronts himself and like talks about things, how he came to overcome mm-hmm. some of his old his eating disorder, his body dysmorphia, his the way that he processes his own celebrity. Like we 
are asked to interact with. Like, he didn't come out of the box like this. He wasn't a 19-year-old who shot up to stardom and then, like, got it. Like, he had a trauma in his background story mm-hmm. and then worked his way out of it. And so we get to see that. And we never get to see that about Natalie Portman in Garden State. We don't get to mm-hmm. see that in... I don't know, what are the other... Mad Love with Drew Barrymore. I don't know, mm-hmm. what are the other classic... Elizabethtown is where it was came from with Orlando Bloom and Kristen Dunst. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So we don't get to see that in those books with those female protagonists. Okay, I am good with moving on to the ID question part yes. of our podcast. And this is a part of our podcast where we, because I teach English at an IB school, um, we take questions that have appeared on previous IB exams, pose them... Uh, as related to this to this book, and then work out some points that could be made in an essay on that topic. So the question that we'll deal with today is asking us about the ways in which writers uh, have sought to make their portrayal of characters and or situations credible. So how did this book or this writer seek to make their portrayal of characters and situations credible? I think, like, obviously we're going to need to deal with the fact that this is pandemic literature. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's dual things. I think it is because there's two parts of the novel, basically. The first part is right after Trump gets elected. Right. right. Um, and that's like a big emotional moment um, mm-hmm. that is a point of connection for a lot of the people and like what they're writing and how they're feeling and how they're acting. Um, and then the second part then takes place two years later in the pandemic. Both of those were really emotional ones when I was going through them. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that um, the author captures that emotion very well from both moments. Yeah, agreed. I think a lot of people got into writing emails or like doing kinds of correspondence that they hadn't been doing in a long time. And people just started doing that more thoughtfully during the pandemic. And that's exactly what happens here. You know, they get pen pals for the first time mm-hmm. since they were young. Um, and that, yeah, that, that really spoke to me that like where you just have the time to write more thoughtful emails. And so when one comes through, instead of just responding with it with one word, it was like, well, let me actually like share thoughts here um and that that like read to me as fairly credible even though the two people participating in it mm-hmm. kept on being like this is a weird thing we're doing this is like not a real way that people interact and i'm reminded of sally rooney's last book where she had a big email correspondence throughout that book and that one i was like this isn't real <laughs> people, people don't write like this to their friends and i remember seeing sally rooney in an interview where she's like i do <laughs> uh, there's different different emails for different people, I guess. Yeah. But no, the emails were so realistic. They were literally just like, "What are like the BLM protests like in your city? If you're gonna visit me, like, make sure that you're wearing a mask. Oh, have you washed your hands yet? It's yeah. like like all of these like tiny moments that like you would say in the same way that like when you watch a TV show, no one says hello, goodbye on the phone. Right. <laughs> right, right. Hello, this is James Earl. Like yeah. it's just like. Oh, it goes straight into the plot. Right. Like every, all of those niceties, all those realistic elements of being in the pandemic um, were part of it. And even in the post-Trump stuff too, I think they talk about just like all getting like hammered mm-hmm. that night. And I also thought there was like this really beautiful dichotomy between what breaks them up in the beginning is her making this assumption that he dates really shallow, beautiful models who are 22 years old. And there's something emblematic of the Trump years of we are returning to that narrative of men just want to grab women by the pussy Mm -hmm. and women assuming the worst of men. Mm -hmm. And there is something that about the pandemic where 
I feel like white people, men, a lot of people were unpacking a lot of these things that had been built obviously over like centuries, but like especially over those Trump years of no, it's not just like make America great again. We need to like actually like rip it down to the studs Mm -hmm. Um, because we've gotten the moment to think about it. And that is the space in which Sally is able to like deprogram herself of like, oh, this stuff with Noah. Yeah, that's a really good point about how the the Trump years and the pandemic asked for a reevaluation of that like return to archetypes um, that exists in the manosphere too. Like that's that to my point earlier about um, hypergamy. Like this, these are based on just these essentialist views that then create ways of dealing with with bodies in the world. Like if you believe that women are like this and men are like this and that there's female energy and masculine energy, if I want to use the Mm -hmm. rhetoric of Tony Robbins also in the manosphere. um, (laughs) The OG manosphere. The OG manosphere. Then you're like going to carry with you assumptions about the bodies that have other signs associated with femaleness or maleness or male energy or whatever. Um, and this this book I think was a lot about disrupting those things and finding other ways to perform identities that are more individual that are like about your written self and not your embodied self. Yeah, like the yeah. pandemic serves as like your favorite thing, the green space. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that, but yeah, the emails. Because they disconnect, um, like, the outside perception, and so they're no longer dealing with the way that she perceives him in real space anymore. It's in the digital space, and this, like, digital space of the pandemic, or that was heightened during the pandemic, does serve as a green space that can fix the problems of the real world. And so then she's able to return to the real world changed after Mm -hmm. having passed through the green space. Yeah. I think the one thing that I worry about, but obviously this is, like, a feminist fantasy novel. Is whether or not they would actually survive returning to the real world after they've been changed. Like they get mm. married at the end of the book, which is great, but I'm just like Taylor Swift and Joe Alwyn broke up. Ariana Grande broke up with her husband right at the end of the pandemic, who was not Pete Davidson. Like yeah. Sofia Vergara <laughs> just broke up with her husband. We're entering this like yeah. post-pandemic world where. That's interesting. You're taking the premise of the question about like, okay, it did all these things to add credibility, but if it's actually going to be credible, yes. we need to deal with these other patterns. Because there's a part where, where I think um, the author is like, oh, well, you know, Noah tours just a little bit. I'm like, do you know how often John Mayer tours? Yeah. Harry Styles just finished a two-year tour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Keanu Reeves, I believe, is still with his artist girlfriend. And I mean, he does John Wick movies every year, so. Yeah. No, I want to I want to believe in it. I just, it, it is the thing where I can believe in their love in the pandemic. I can believe in their love mm-hmm. in the green world. But is the reason that they were able to break the Danny Horse rule? Yeah. Because at the very end, right, it's, it's, it's like, look, we're, we can't let the paparazzi break us up. We can't let, like, what other people are saying break us up. But that's easier said than done and it's something that's easier to do when you're just like in a a love bubble where you never have to go to like movie premieres or whatever together (laughs) yeah i don't know the answer to that i don't know the answer to that but i'm going to i mean this is a a female fantasy it's a marrying the prince but the prince is different than we've seen the prince in the past but the guy who pays for everything and has the fabulous house in la and it does emotional labor and and buys your father Oh yeah, that was very nice of him. Like yeah. like all of the the toilet, special toilet for him. Yeah, he yeah. buys a special toilet, meets the neighbor. Right, like that is the. Is he still going to do that when the pandemic's over and yeah. we're in the real world? Is he still going to be this good? Yeah, 
Or will he just or, call his assistant? Or, I mean, I believe that he'll still be this good because he hasn't given us any yeah. reason to think that he's not this good. As we said, he's like mm-hmm. a moral center here. Yeah. Um, but like, will they be able to handle the outside pressure mm-hmm. of him being super famous, her not being what people expect a, a super famous person to date? I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to go ahead <laughs> and just believe in their love and believe in the premise of the romantic comedy yes. and allow that pattern to be performed first in the green world of literary fiction and then it will fix the problems of the real world when we yeah, yeah. we enter the space of the novel and come back changed yeah. and now the reality has changed and they're going to work out. I love that. I think that is where I'm like, oh, the end of the Barbie movie where she thought that she had... The feminism of Barbie world had translated into the real world, but then she found out it was not true. I mean, I hope it's true in this case. I hope that women read this book and are like, this is a man that I want Mm -hmm. and not, I hope that Ryle stops beating his wife. And hopefully all the young men sucked into the manosphere, wake up and start actually reading media produced by women rather than... Right. And like, what do women actually want? Yeah. And I think... I think what's beautiful about this, it's a, a bit of an inversion of like the Churchill, like Darcy moment mm-hmm. where it's like, she falls in love with Darcy when she sees like Pemberley. Mm-hmm. There is like this display of wealth, although mm-hmm. obviously it's like how he keeps his grounds and his people and blah, 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 that like changes her mind. Very much in this, it's, she gets to know him through his emails and it gets to know his heart and then to how he takes care of her stepfather. That is what women want. Right, right. Yeah, she like wants his body when she sees him shirtless, but then she doesn't actually fall for him. It doesn't become a serious thing for her Mm -hmm. until she sees the vulnerability. Right, which actually the vulnerability is the first thing that attracts her to him when he's like, I've got this comedy idea. I hear that you're really good at structure. Yeah. Can you help me make this better? He comes to her for help. With vulnerability. Yeah. And listens to her stuff and like is impressed by it legitimately. Yeah. Yeah. This is what the women want. (laughs) Yeah. And all the credibility, all the stuff that dealt with the credibility that we discussed, I think lends credence to the hopeful nature of this book that Mm -hmm. that can be a reality. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just that she did things to make her book credible, is that those that credibility that she earned with those things like the pandemic and the Trump election and the emotional Mm -hmm. impact of those those things, that they're then used to hopefully impact the real world. Okay, I think it's time for us to pick next month's book. And I kind of like reading books that other people are also reading. So should we try to figure out what other people are reading and get into the zeitgeist? You know, I think we're already in the zeitgeist and I want to stay there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to suggest that we read a book by an author that I think wrote the best book of last year, Babel. Like it was in my top five. And she has a new book out that is all over book talk called Yellow Face. Do you know this one? I don't know it. All right. I mean, I know the concept. Well, you're going to be really frustrated by how talented RF Kuang is. She's like 27, has a PhD, and has written just some banger novels. So she is just outrageously intelligent um, and frustratingly successful. Um, at a really young age. I really hope that our podcast is not embarrassing to <laughs> her genius. <laughs> yeah, that's that, That's the danger of, of us committing to reading that one. It's a story about a white novelist who steals the manuscript of an Asian novelist and publishes it as her own under an ambiguous pseudonym with the last name Song. And so it's like, 
putting on yellow face. Yoikes! Yeah. Well, it sounds like we'll have a lot to talk about. It's going to be meaty. Um, I think she doesn't back down from pretty thorny subjects. So let's read that one and see what wisdom we can pull from it. Let's do it. Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections, and you can join us next month when we'll be reading Yellowface by RF Kwong. See you then. See you then. And live. Oh, that's good. And live, live from, from Durham, Durham, North Carolina. This is the Night Owl. <laughs> We're discussing it. <laughs>